You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananus and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And All flesh shall see the salvation of God. May God bless the preaching of his word. For church, today we finally arrive at the moment we've all been waiting for. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who took on flesh, was born of the Virgin Mary. He is about to come out of the shadows and make His public appearance as the long-awaited Messiah. But before He appears on the scene, we first learn about the start of John's public ministry in the wilderness. Now, John is no stranger to us. We've known about him and the role he would play in redemptive history all the way back in chapter 1. We know that, that John was sent by God to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. And according to verse 1, John's ministry began in the wilderness in the 15th year now of a new Caesar named Tiberius. And the start of his ministry set everything in motion for Jesus to make his grand entrance as the promised Messiah. So think of it this way. As John goes public, Jesus is now going to go public. So as John now is going to go public with his ministry, Jesus is going to go public. If you recall, up to this point in Luke's gospel... Angels have announced the coming of Christ to a few individuals and a group of shepherds. The Holy Spirit has revealed to a specific few individuals the divine identity of the Son of Mary. There are some at this point that know that this baby born in Bethlehem was none other than the Savior of the world. And on one occasion, at the dedication of Jesus in the temple If you recall, Simeon and Anna announced who Jesus was. They said, he is 
the Christ. But apart from these few occasions, at this point, Jesus has lived in relative obscurity in a small town called Nazareth for around 30 years. But those days are over. All the sudden, at this point in Luke's gospel, think of it this way, the curtain is going to be pulled back and Jesus Christ is going to be revealed in all of His glory for all people to see. But, in order for this to happen, John must prepare people for Jesus. Jesus is about to be seen in all of His glory. But before that can happen, John had to come and to prepare people for Jesus. And what was true then is true today. We need to be prepared for what we're about to encounter. If at this point you're starting to get a little anxious and just think, hey, can, can, can Luke, can we speed up? Can we just get to the miracles and Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Jesus teaching and, and Jesus putting the Pharisees in their place? Can we just get there? Here's what we need to take away from this morning. In the same way that this original audience, they needed preparation by John before they could behold the glory of Christ and before they could respond rightly. Listen, we will not see the glory of Christ and respond rightly to His glory if we're not prepared. We may appreciate Jesus. We may admire Him. We may applaud Him. But we will not respond appropriately to Him if we are not prepared for what we are about to encounter. And John, John encounters or prepares the people for what they are about to encounter. And God, out of His love for us, has recorded this story for us so that we too could be prepared for all that we are going to encounter as we behold the glory of of Christ. You see, before we can see the glory of Christ and respond appropriately, we must understand John's mission and John's message. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to break down this text to the following two points. We're going to look at salvation and history, verses 1 and 2, and then salvation and hope, verses 3 through 6. That captures really what's taking place here in these six verses, salvation in history, salvation and hope. Let's begin with the first two verses, salvation and history. Now I want to read these first two verses again. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananus and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, did you notice 
that now for the second time, Luke gives us a timestamp. That's how chapter 2 began. And now Luke gives us a new timestamp in chapter 3 as a new section of this gospel occurs or begins. This is a new section in chapter 3. Luke gives us this timestamp, letting us know exactly when these events took place. Now, so that we have a sense of context, a lot has occurred between chapter 2 and chapter 3. When we ended chapter 2, Jesus was 12 years of age. Fast forward, it's around 18 years later. And that's when chapter 3 begins. Jesus and John are now grown men who will begin to fulfill their God-ordained roles. Now this morning, we're going to reflect on John's role as a prophet who will prepare people for the coming of Christ. But before we reflect on John's role as a prophet, let's first reflect on the details given to us by Luke that really roots and grounds this story in history. Notice Luke gives us all these people and the places in which they ruled. Why, Why do that? He doesn't do it all throughout his gospel. Why tell us these details? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. Here's one. Commentator David Garland put it this way. Christianity is not, is not a mystery religion with mythical, fantastical stories. It happened in history. Luke fixes his story firmly in the context of world history. So one of the reasons Luke does this is because this story really did take place in history, and it's important for us to know that. If you remember how Luke began this gospel, his preface, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke tells us, here's why I'm writing, here's who I'm writing to. If you recall, Luke tells us that he wrote an orderly account of all that had been accomplished So that anyone who reads it would have certainty. Certainty about what they've been taught and what they've heard. Now, in order for this narrative to create certainty among us, the stories that Luke tells us have to be rooted in world history and redemptive history. And that's what Luke is going to do all throughout his gospel. If, if, if his goal is for us to read all that he wrote so that we could have certainty that it's all true, it's all true, he's got to root every story in world history and redemptive history. But there's another reason that Luke includes these details about these governing officials who were ruling at the start of John and Jesus' public ministry. Did you notice that there are three people mentioned by name that will be significant later in this story? Did you catch it? Pilate, Herod, and Caiaphas, the high priest. We're kind of getting a little preview from Luke. He's saying, hey, you need to know these guys. They're going to come back later in the story. See, these three men in their respective roles will use their positions of influence To have Jesus crucified. And yet, here's the divine irony. Their significance 
Well, it's insignificant. It's insignificant in light of the grand scheme of what God is accomplishing through this man named John. And that's what we're supposed to pick up on. Once again, David Garland in his commentary says it so well. Those wearing the crowns and holding the reins of power fool themselves into believing that they determine the course of history. But the narrative makes clear that God's plan is not controlled by the laws of kings, the machinations of politicians, or the solemn rituals of priests. History is directed by a transcendent power leading to an appointed time that is not in the appointment books of any of these rulers. It is a time only God controls. The word of God bypasses the halls of power with their royal trappings and comes to a lone prophet in the wilderness. Well said. That's what's happening here. And we see that when we pay close attention to verses 1 and 2. Did you notice verses 1 and 2 consist of a single sentence? One sentence with one grammatical clause. All that we were told had one purpose. The grammatical clause is this. The word of God came to John. Why, why, Luke, did you tell us about all these ruling figures and when they reigned? And Luke says, they're the backstory of the main story. What God is doing on the outskirts with this lone prophet is far more important than what's going on in Rome or with any of these governors now what does this mean at the end of verse 2 which says that the word of the lord came to john the son of zachariah well i think the original audience would have clearly picked up on what was being expressed through this phrase that that phrase the word of god came to john the son of zachariah it implies that at this point john is officially sanctioned by god to speak as a prophet on his behalf. Think about this. Go back and look at other Old Testament prophets. Here's one you can go back and look at later. Jeremiah chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. It said, and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the son of... This is a formula that we see all throughout the Old Testament when other prophets were being sanctioned and put in place by God. So at this point, John is now functioning as a prophet from God. And why is that important? Remember that between the last prophets of the Old Testament, up until now, the commissioning of John, 400 years have passed without a prophet speaking for God to his people. So this is a significant moment. Now, most of the time when, when we refer to John, we call him the Baptist. Not because that was his denomination. He didn't found that denomination. 
We, we refer to John by the title the Baptist for two run, reasons. One's practical. It, it's our way of distinguishing him between John the Apostle. But the main reason we call him the Baptist is because he was commissioned by God to baptize people. We see that in verse 3 and later on in verse 7 of this text. However, listen, John's commissioning to baptize people, though it's an important part of his calling, it isn't central. I love it that Luke doesn't call him the Baptist. John is the prophet. That's his main role. Baptism is something he does. It's a a symbol of what he's doing. But his main role is he is a prophet. He is a prophet sent by God to prepare people for salvation in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. It says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And then verses 7 through 9, which we will look at later, or look at next week, we hear John speak in a way that at first can be shocking and sound rude. What he's doing is he sounds exactly like an Old Testament prophet. See, John is functioning like a prophet, which shouldn't surprise us if we remember all the way back to chapter 1. When the angel Gabriel comes and tells his father Zechariah about his birth. Look back at chapter 1 verses 13 through 17. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And get this. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now though the word prophet isn't used here. It's going to be used later. If you hear what Gabriel just said. God has sent your son to fulfill Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. Do you know how your Old Testament ends? Malachi, last book. Chapter 4, last words of the entire book. In the last days, I'm going to send one like Elijah. He is going to be this one who's going to turn the children back to their fathers and the fathers to their children and the people to the Lord. So He's a prophet because Elijah was a prophet. Now that raises this question. Why does Luke, and not only Luke, but the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, And John. So all four gospel writers do this. Why? Inform us of John's ministry. A ministry that points to the a ministry that points to Jesus and authenticates the identity of Jesus. Why not just, okay, maybe give us a few little lines and move right to Jesus? I mean, won't we be more impressed if we just get to miracles? I mean, just skip to the story of him feeding the five thousand or raising the dead. Why do all four gospel writers find it important 
to actually tell us John played a huge role in authenticating the ministry of Jesus. Makes you think, can't Jesus hold his own? (laughs) Why does he need someone to point to him? Well, we know that John was highly respected in his day. And we know he played a role in the story of Jesus, an important role. I mean, just think about this gospel we've been in so far. Ever since it began, you cannot separate John and Jesus. Before we hear about the birth announcement of Jesus, we hear about the birth announcement of John. Then we hear about Jesus's. Then we hear about John's birth. Then we hear about Jesus's birth. We're about to hear about Jesus's public ministry, but who do we hear about first? John's public ministry. It's obvious that Luke thought John is very important in showing you who Jesus is. And not only did Luke think that, his original audience must have thought that, or he would have just been wasting his time showing you, hey, if John is great and Jesus is greater, do you see who Jesus is? John was obviously someone who was admired and respected. To this point, we we, we know that this is the case because later on in chapter 3, verse 15, it says, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. You get a picture of John? John is so powerful in his ministry that people are starting to say, hey, do you think this might be him? John's important. And if you just think that, that's, that's these folks. Listen to what Jesus says about John later on in chapter 7, verses 24 through 28. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did, did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's court. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is Jesus. More than a prophet. This is he whom it is written, Behold, I send my messengers before your face, who will prepare your way before the Lord. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Sounds pretty important to me. Do you remember what Zachariah said about his son? At the birth of his son, when he all of a sudden his mouth was opened after being closed, And he began to prophesy about his son. And this is what he said. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, 
being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His way, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. See, John has a very, very important role. He is a prophet sent by God to prepare people for what they are going to encounter when they meet Jesus. Now, if you're wondering, okay, so how then does, does John's ministry work? Well, imagine with me for just a moment this before we move on to the next point. Imagine hearing about this man who is a dynamic communicator. Word begins to travel through Seguin and various regions about this man. He's a dynamic communicator, but he's unconventional and he's controversial. Everybody's talking about him. Not only is everybody talking about him, everybody's flocking to him. People from regions, people are coming great distances. White collar, blue collar, Jew, Gentile, they're coming. They've heard about this guy. People are drawn to him because he's courageous. When he speaks, he speaks with conviction. He says what needs to be said. Let the chips fall where they may. And part of his popularity comes from the fact that he doesn't represent the prominent religious voices of the day. Actually, usually he calls them out. As he speaks... You listen. You notice that what he says seems consistent with the message of other Old Testament prophets. This guy might be unconventional, but he's not rogue. He sounds like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi. In other words, everything he's saying lines up and is consistent with God's word. And the most striking thing, as you stand there and you look at him and you listen to him and you see the crowds... The most striking thing about this messenger from God is the authority by which he speaks. And I don't mean an authority that's coming from his personality. He's demonstrative. He's got one of those personalities that's forceful. No, the kind of authority that you notice about him is this. You know he has authority from God because his word accomplishes what he proclaims. He's not just saying what he thinks. He's speaking on behalf of God. And God's word never returns void. Can you see this guy? Can you picture him? Here's what makes him unique. As he speaks and you keep listening, you're surprised. Because this man doesn't use his position of influence to draw attention to himself as you would think he would. He uses all of his rhetorical devices, all of his calls, all of his metaphors to say, there is one coming who is going to bring salvation. I'm not he. 
He's on his way. That's who John is. John isn't drawing attention to himself. John is drawing attention to Jesus. His public witness about Jesus helped authenticate the ministry of Jesus. And his public witness of Jesus helped authenticate that Jesus is the Messiah. But that's not all. John's message as a prophet, if we listen closely in the weeks ahead, John's message is full of hope. It's full of hope that God is preparing people for salvation in Jesus Christ. And that brings us now to verses 3 through 6. Salvation and hope. Look again at verses 3 through 6. And notice this. This is Luke talking. And in verses 5 through, or 4 through 6, he gives us his assessment of John's ministry. Luke tells us, John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying of the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What, what is going on here? Why, why, why does Luke insert this here? Remember, this is Luke's assessment. As he reflects on the ministry of John, he inserts Isaiah chapter 40. Why, why do that? Well, remember what Luke's stated goal was when writing down this orderly account, going back to the preface. Luke tells us that he compiled a narrative of things that have been accomplished, but that word actually means fulfilled. All that has been fulfilled by God. And according to Luke, as he looks at the ministry of John as a prophet, he says Isaiah 40 has been fulfilled. When no about Luke's ministry, or John's ministry, he just fulfilled this word from the prophet Isaiah that was prophesied 700 years before Christ was born. As John begins his ministry and calls people to repentance and then baptizes them, he's preparing for the coming of Christ, and by doing so, he's ushering in a new era in redemptive history. Listen to Benjamin Glad. He says it this way. Luke quotes from Isaiah 40. One of the most important passages in the book of Isaiah and the entire Old Testament. Isaiah 40 announces the return of God's people who were enslaved in Babylon. Just as God led his people through the wilderness and into the promised land. Therefore, when Luke quotes from Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, 
He claims that John the Baptist is proclaiming the end of Israel's spiritual exile and her long-awaited return. That's what's happening here. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Isaiah. But it's a book that consists of two halves. There's 66 chapters. You can really split it in half. Chapters 1 through 39 are oracles, messages of judgment. God's people have been sent prophets, not not only one like Isaiah, but many for hundreds of years saying, God has made you these promises that you would be His people and that He would bless you, but He made a covenant with you and you are breaking that covenant. Return to the Lord. And the people continue to be stiff-necked and stubborn and say, oh, we're the people of God. We want the privileges of being the people of God, but we want to worship who we want to worship. We want to live how we want to live. And 39 chapters of Isaiah is a call to God's people to return. If they don't return, judgment is coming. And judgment is coming in the way of them going into exile. Babylon, this great nation, is going to come, take God's people out of the promised land, and take them into exile. And that occurred. But then you come to Isaiah 40. And 40 through 66, the entire tone of the book changes. Isaiah 40, verse 1 begins, Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. So after 39 chapters of God telling His people, you are going to experience my judgment for how you have responded, He doesn't end there. He says, but you are still my people. And I've got a message of hope for you. One day, I'm going to bring you home. One day, I'm going to bring you back. You see, the language of Isaiah 40, as we see not only there, but throughout other passages in the book of Isaiah, it pictures this spiritual return of God's people as a second exodus. If you pay attention to the language throughout the book of Isaiah, starting in chapter 40, when it says God's people are going to return, it's it's a second exodus. It's using the same language you would find in the book of Exodus. God's people are going to come back that way. And here's a little parenthesis. This theme of the exodus, it's an important part of Luke's gospel. We're going to come back to it time and time again. Now, why is this important? Why should we consider this? Well, at this point in Israel's history, hundreds of years have passed since they went into exile. They have returned. They're back in the land. But they're still in spiritual exile. Oh, they've been back at at home for hundreds of years. They've rebuilt the temple that was destroyed at the exile. They got their... Priests back and their sacrifices back. Oh, but they're still in bondage. They may be at home, but they're far from the Lord. And Isaiah 40 and the ministry of John the Baptist is declaring God is bringing you home. And you know how he's going to bring you home? He's going to remove every obstacle. Valleys are going to be raised up. Mountains are going to be made low. The crooked is going to be made straight. You want to make your way to God? God's going to remove every obstacle. You're going to get to Him. 
He's going to remove every obstacle. Daryl Bach in his commentary says, Isaiah's picture of preparing for God's salvation is a supernatural preparing of a highway. The leveling of geographical, geographic obstacles is a way of portraying God's coming as powerful and without obstruction. Just as God parted the sea in the Exodus, so He will remove all of creation's obstacles for His people as He delivers them. This is a message of hope. God is going to bring you home. Not just to a physical land, but to the place you belong and right relationship with him. You see, John's message as a prophet is one of salvation and hope. Oh, John's going to have some hard words to say that we need to hear. But we must not hear what John's saying is only a message of judgment, hellfire and brimstone. First, we must hear this message of salvation and hope. God is going to make a way for salvation and He's going to remove every obstacle that stands the way of people coming to Him. But listen, in order for people to come to Jesus and find salvation in Jesus, they need a path to get to Him. Jesus is coming, John says. Jesus is coming, but in order for people to make their way to them, a path has to be made. And the path that God provided for all people to meet the Messiah is by the hearing of the message of the gospel. Think about it. Isn't that what John's doing? What is the path? It's John's preaching. Listen to verse 18 of chapter 3. Luke summarizes John's ministry. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. The word good news is where we get the word gospel. What is John doing? He's preaching the gospel. And that is the path. Let's be clear. What was true then remains true today. No one, no one, no one can come to Christ apart from hearing the message of the gospel. That is the highway. Christ is coming, John says. How are we going to come to him? Hear this message. Hear this message. That's the highway. And once we hear the message, we must respond with faith and repentance. That's what we're going to see in verses 7 through 14, which is where we're going to be next week. So then how do we respond today as we close? As we close out this message today, and as I was taking time to just pray about, okay, how do we think through and rightly apply this text to our hearts? Outside of faith and repentance, what other thing can we be aware of? What are the point of application? And here's what I think we're, we're to do as we close. I want to draw our attention to the greatest barrier to salvation. 
There's still a great barrier. God has removed obstacles, but there is a great barrier. And we are going to come across this great barrier all throughout Luke's gospel. I wish time allowed this morning for us just to flip through, see example after example after example. So if you think, I'm just elevating this one, believe me, as we make our way through Luke's gospel, it's going to come up again and again and again and again. What is this barrier? Self-righteousness. Those who time and time again in Luke's gospel who reject this message are the self-righteous. Time and time again, listen to chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. This is just one, one example. Wish I could give you more. After this, he went out, this is Jesus, and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why are people time and time again in Luke's gospel going to see the glory of Christ and say, eh, are Worse than, huh? He belongs to Satan. Kill him! Crucify him! Why? Self-righteousness. You don't need a doctor unless you're sick. You don't need a savior if you're not a sinner. See, there, all throughout this gospel, we are going to see how self-righteousness is an obstacle to receiving Christ. And when I say self-righteousness, I wish we had time to unpack this more. I'm talking about a self-righteousness that is a spiritual self-righteousness that exists among God's people, and there is a secular self-righteousness. We are all in danger of self-righteousness. And not only are we in danger of it, the world is in danger of it. Listen, turn on the news, the news for all of their animosity towards religion and the things of God and morality. They are filled with self-righteousness. They can't stand everybody else's sins. (laughs) But excuse mine. Listen, here's the lie of self-righteousness. I'm good enough for God to accept me. Or I'll never be good enough for God to accept me. Both of those are a lie. But here's the good news of the gospel. Listen, here is the good news. God accepts us. Not because of what We've done. Not because we've been 
good enough. Our status with God isn't based on our merit. It is based on the person and work of Jesus alone. That's the good news. So, what do we do with this warning about self-righteousness? A lot could be said. But I think this is important for us both today and throughout this week and as we make our way through this gospel. At every turn, as we see Jesus, we must learn from the example of, of others who saw him in his glory. They saw him do miracles. They saw him raise the dead. They heard his teaching. And they, they didn't turn to him. So let us not think all we need is just to read all these passages and see them with our eyes and we'll be good enough. No, we need preparation. And we need confrontation. Before Jesus could come as Savior, John had to come and say, you need a Savior. So what do we do? I want to encourage you. Nothing will keep you from seeing Jesus, delighting in Jesus, being amazed by Jesus, than resisting being confronted by your sin. Luke's gospel is going to show us the glory of Jesus. And it's going to take our legs out from under us. And Luke's gospel is going to punch us in the gut. It's going to show us time and time again how sinful we are, how self-righteous we are. But guess what? Why did John preach this message of forgiveness? Or why did he preach this message of repentance? For the forgiveness of sins. And listen, where there is no sin, there is no need for forgiveness. You want to experience forgiveness? Then don't resist when God, over the days ahead, confronts us as sinners. Because in the American evangelical culture, everybody loves to talk about the forgiveness of God. But don't you dare talk about sin. How can there be forgiveness if there's not sin? See, we will not be amazed by Jesus until we come face to face with our own self-righteousness and sinfulness. And then we stand amazed that he calls us his own. So, let us pray that God would help us hear and heed and apply this message to our hearts today and in the days ahead. Father, would you write this truth on our heart? And Lord, would you help us to not resist your good work because of our allergy to talking about our sin? That, Lord, we would not come with self-righteousness before you. We would come to the foot of the cross humbled and amazed. And, Lord, I thank you. Thank you in the spirit of the picture we see in Isaiah. That you remove every obstacle. I thank you that countless, countless men and women in this room their greatest obstacle 
of resisting you, you overcame. If there's any here this morning who are resisting you, Lord, would you do the miracle of overcoming their resistance, showing them their need for a Savior, and showing Jesus as the perfect Savior. And may they leave here today knowing salvation and having a relationship with you. Lord, help us to now live in light of what we've heard and to apply it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for every part of it. Thank you for preparing us for what we're going to see in the days ahead. Continue to prepare our hearts. Make our hearts fertile ground for Christ to do his work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.